Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. And so today's podcast, we are so pleased to welcome um, Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan. They have written a brand new book um, and have done such extensive, incredible, important research in the area around sexual violence. And so I'd like each of them to share a little bit about their background and introduce themselves to all of our listeners today. Jennifer, would you kindly say a little bit about you and your background? Sure. Um, Katie and Claire, it's terrific to be with you today. Uh, Jennifer Hirsch, I'm a professor um, at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. Um, I'm an anthropologist, and I've spent my career working at the intersection of gender, sexuality, health, and social science. Perfect. And Seamus, could you share as well a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Uh, My name is Seamus Khan. I'm a professor of sociology and of American studies at Princeton University, Um, My work is primarily on educational institutions. Um, I've written about elites and inequality and gender. And so I bring a lens with um, Jennifer of thinking about inequality and gender um, to her expertise on sex, sexuality and relationships. Um, Thank you so much. It sounds like a brilliant partnership already. And I think for the sake of our listeners, um, as we often feature survivors and their stories, they would love to hear a little bit from each of you about how you came to work in this field, specifically around ending sexual violence and really hopefully as we work toward um, ending sexual violence in totality. So um, Jennifer, how did your path, how did you navigate that path to this cause particularly? Two very quick stories. So the first is when I was 12, I got in trouble for making out with my boyfriend behind the bunk at camp. Um, And I marched into the camp director's office and I told her that she should be ashamed for giving me negative messages about sexuality. Um, Another uh, brief note is when I was in college, I remember probably the scariest experience I had in college was standing outside an all-male eating club holding a movie projector waiting to go in and show a movie about date rape. So fast forward 30 years, um, and I saw the national conversation about campus sexual assault, and it felt like I was called into it because my whole career has been on prevention, and it felt like there was something that I could really bring to the national conversation um, in terms of the social roots of sexual assault and thinking in a whole different way about prevention. I love it. <laughs> I can picture you um, both making out in the bleachers and getting in big time trouble. I wish I had been caught myself a few times. It probably would serve me better. <laughs> um, probably not behind the bleachers. My makeout spot was um, usually in a parked car somewhere along the creek, <laughs> as we would say, um, growing up. But um, Seamus, how did you come to this cause? Well, two ways. One is Jennifer had this incredible idea for a research project, and um, she had asked one of my colleagues, who was then the dean of the um, social sciences at Columbia, Alondra Nelson, who's now in the Biden administration. And Alondra said, I'm too busy, but ask Seamus. And so that's sort of the way that I ended up working with Jennifer on this idea of the project. Um, personally, a range of ways. And I think one is that when I was in college, um, one of my closest friends was assaulted by my roommate. And um, then uh, through kind of a a series of events, 
she had advocated for him to remain on campus. And um, uh, he then remained on campus and ended up violating the conditions of his stay. And I was the person who reported that. And it resulted in my losing all my friends. Um, And um, it was kind of a, a shattering moment for me in college, one that really changed my orientation to my friend groups and all kinds of things. And so um, that was a a real awakening moment for me about some of the sort of social dynamics and relationships um, that are part of not just the experience of being assaulted, but the reporting process and what it does to friends and communities. Um, Seamus, I want to dig in on the book, but I do really appreciate and i think our listeners do too what you just shared about your roommate and before we leave that just briefly i wanted to hear about the resolution you know it was you know you were brought in but how did you go on about your way when this was going on in your domicile your own space and air you breathed every night so it happened right at the end of our freshman year and so um you know, the, the resolution was, um, you know, it was something where, you know, not to get too much into the details of the case, but he um, claimed to have been under the influence of a lot of different drugs. And so um, she thought that it would be best for him to stay within the community because that would be better than kicking him out of the community. And then the challenge was that we were um, the following year living together, this woman and I, and uh, as um the people who kind of oversee new freshmen and the same guy who assaulted her started selling drugs to our freshmen. And this seemed like a pretty significant violation of um, the sort of social contract, but also her advocacy for him. And it didn't, it seemed like kind of a no brainer to um, raise it at that point. And, you know, living with the guy, it wasn't, it wasn't that pronounced because, by the time I fully understood what had happened, we were in summer break. Wow. Okay. Well, we may or may not come back to that. Let's dig in, though, on the, the new book that has just been released and talked about. And, you know, I, I love that entire high schools are reading your book um, as a summer book read. Um, can you share with us, uh, maybe Jennifer, I roll back to you, the, the title and what's the overall theme of the book? Yeah, so Sexual Citizens, Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus, uh, which Seamus and I co-authored and which is published by W.W. Norton. Um, I'm actually going to open with a story um, to bring listeners right into the book. Um, So Karen, um, when we interviewed her, was very confused about what had happened to her. She said that her her ex-boyfriend called her up he was sad and he wanted to talk. And so she met him in the park. Um, his sister had received a cancer diagnosis and she, you know, she still cared about him. They'd broken up, but but um, he was a good person. She wanted to show up for him as a friend. So she met him in the park and um, as she comforted him, they started to make out. She was still attracted to him. And um, then uh, he pushed her up against a rock and he assaulted her and she said no very clearly and then he put her on the ground and continued to assault her and she recounted this story to us like with 
um, nervous laughter. And she said, well, he must have thought that I said no because I didn't like the position. And then she described finding dirt in her vagina. So it was she she was a simulta- simultaneously like a very um, she was very aware of the details of what happened, as you know, that survivors sometimes are and yet unable to really process it. And it's it was such an awful story. And at the same time, like if the only way that that story lands is to think we've got to find those people and get them out of our community, well, we know that we can't punish our way to a better world. And so we started the project that um, led to sexual citizens in 2014 when there was a lot of conversation around campus sexual assault. There was a lot of attention Um, that survivors and the Obama administration had focused on how to improve processes of adjudication, but there wasn't really enough in terms of effective prevention. And so um, we thought, well, if we, we do this research, we can actually map out how sexual assault is designed into the campus environment so that it's not a conversation about bad people or a hunting ground, but rather we show how sexual assault is a predictable result of how we organize campus life, which sounds super grim until you realize that once you see how sexual assault is engineered into campus life, you can have a whole other conversation about how to build it out. So that's what we do in Sexual Citizens is we radically expand the conversation about prevention. What were the primary what what primary themes emerged from this research that you did? Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you actually did this research because it's such an enormous project. Sure. So the project was um, the the book Sexual Citizens is based upon actually an even larger project, um, which Jennifer led with Claude Mellons. Um, for Sexual Citizens, we relied upon interviews with 151 students. And these students hadn't just experienced sexual assault. In in fact, only about 40% of those that we spoke to had. Um, So instead, the interviews were just with college students about their lives and how sex fit into their lives. And this for us was a really important part of our approach, which was to think about sexual assault, not just as something that pathological people did, but that was part of the normal organization of sexuality. Now, when I say the normal organization of sexuality, I don't mean to say that it's something that we should accept, but that in some ways, just as Jennifer said, it's almost like a natural consequence of some of the ways that sexuality is organized. So in those 151 interviews, which lasted typically about two hours, um, sometimes longer, we talked to people about their lives before college, in college, their experiences with intimacy, their experiences with sex and their experiences with sexual assault. For 25 of those people, their experiences with assault were so numerous that we needed up to two rounds of two of follow-up interviews. So, you know, that's an additional four hours of discussion. Now, what people say and what people do aren't always the same thing. And so in addition to those interviews, we also had embedded ethnographers. Jennifer and I were two of these people. And what embedded ethnographers means is that we, along with a group of younger researchers, spent time with students. Jennifer and I only spent time with students in public spaces. We both taught at Columbia University at the time, 
And, you know, you don't really want to see your sociology professor hanging out at a party. But the younger researchers were in those private spaces. That meant spending time with them in fraternity basements and sorority socials. It meant hanging out with students on intramural sports leagues and in religious student spaces. It meant making dinner at night in campus apartments, as well as hanging out and playing video games or Catan early into the morning hours. And what this research did was it gave us a sense of the lived experience of being a college student. So the aim of our research was really to kind of pull back the curtain on college life and then use that portrait of college to make sense of why it was that sexual violence had been, has been such a persistent feature of, co- of the college experience. And what were the primary themes that emerged from that research? Uh, so there are, there are three big ideas in the book, and I'll I'll start with the story and then hand off to Seamus. Um, uh, so Charisma, uh, when we asked her to talk about Columbia, described campus as a white space. And just hold that in mind as I tell tell her story. Um, she she talked about the guys on campus as um, a lot of them were um, white guys who listened to shitty music, drank too much, and didn't find her attractive. And she didn't really find them attractive either. So she ended up um, going off campus, actually, to Brooklyn uh, to uh, connect with a guy who she'd been uh, texting with, a, a friend of a friend. Um, and uh, in the book, we tell the story of, of her being assaulted in, in his room. And uh, the ideas that we use to make sense of Charisma's story and Karen's story and all the other ideas are sexual projects, sexual geographies, and sexual citizenship. Sexual projects is the question of what sex is for, which you might think is like the kind of question that only two professors would ask, because of course we know what sex is for. But actually, we don't really know what sex is for, because none of the students we spoke with were trying to make babies, and a lot of the sex that they had was not very pleasurable. And so in fact, we saw that um, students were involved in a range of sexual projects, which were connected in a complicated series of ways to their vulnerability to assault and to their risk of assaulting someone else. Um, uh, Sexual geographies is the spatial question. It's the way that um, space is not just a backdrop for everyday experience, but actually almost like a third character that organizes some of what happens. So think about Charisma's discussion, Charisma's description of campus as as a white space. She felt socially pushed off of campus because the dominant ways of socializing were not ways that she felt um, interested in or comfortable in or welcome in. And so she ended up off campus at this guy's apartment in a space that he controlled. Um, She wasn't a wealthy student, and so she couldn't just open up an app and come back to campus when it felt to her like things were running off the rails. And so there are all kinds of ways, both like micro level ways in terms of how dorm rooms are furnished and who has control of our party space and uh, more macro level ways that have to do with sort of which social groups control space on campus. Um, And in particular, I think specifically, at least in the Colombian Barner context, how a lot of the high value social spaces are controlled by 
students who tend to be wealthy, white, cis, heterosexual men. Um, so that's sexual projects and sexual geographies. Then I'll hand off to Seamus to talk about sexual citizenship. The thing that Jennifer and I are doing here in highlighting space is actually building on decades of feminist scholarship and activism that talks about the interrelationship between power and sexual assault. And what we're noting is how space is often intertwined with power, but that also organizations and institutions frequently have policies and procedures that augment rather than moderate power inequalities. So let me just give one quick example of that. Um, That seems like it has nothing to do with sexual assault, but actually may have a lot to do with sexual assault. At Columbia and Barnard, there's this naturalization that as you get more senior, as you are more senior at the institution, you have better space. So seniors typically have singles. They typically have places to socialize around their singles. They frequently have places to cook and eat. And freshmen, by contrast, have very few places to collectively congregate. They often are in double rooms, et cetera. So what does that do? Well, one of the things that it does as an institutional policy is funnel younger students into spaces controlled by older students. And if somebody is going to host another person for sex, typically, not always, but typically, it's a more senior student. Now, what we're pointing out here is that, you know, in America and in many Western countries and many countries around the world, if you're talking about a heterosexual context, it's pretty unlikely that a senior woman is going to host a freshman man, but it's much more likely that a senior man may host a more junior woman. And what we're pointing to is how the campus geography, the policies around space, augment rather than moderate existing power inequalities. And it does so in ways that aren't just about gender. It's also about age and race and wealth. Some colleges and universities, for example, charge more for better space on campus. You have to pay more to have access to a better dorm. And that actually gives already empowered students even more power. And so what Jennifer and I are doing is we're kind of asking institutions, and we've actually created a toolkit that's totally free for institutions to do this. Um, We're in the process of finalizing it over the next couple months to sort of reevaluate how space is distributed on campus and to think critically about how space and power are intertwined and how policies on about space can actually sort of disentangle the relationship between power and control over space on campus and create contexts where more powerful people don't actually have even more power because of how we've organized the spaces that we work, live, and um, experience campus life within. I love that, Seamus. I feel like what you're asking institutions to do, though, is, you know, you're, that's the intersectionality between the power and control necessary often in committing the act of sexual violence, right? And so you're asking institutions to really think, rethink how they provide access and control of power to the privileged already to further use the sexual space to relegate 
their control and power, right? Like it's a, it's a, an extension of the the overall power and control structure to be able to, to, to control that in the sexual realm too. And I would think also that just the idea of totally upending that particular issue. And, and as you mentioned, Seamus, that some people pay more for better spaces or they're more senior and they think that they are owed, you know, they've worked hard, they've been students. And this is one of the perks of being a more senior student is you get a better space. Um, how changing that formula and including maybe even changing how rooms are designed, how that could cause a, an incredible backlash. Yeah, and has it done so? I'm curious, Jennifer and Seamus, have in you rolling out your platform? How has it been received? So I think what you what you've honed in on is the way a focus on sexual geographies allows us to take a public health approach to campus sexual assault to to build a different kind of environment as opposed to telling people to be better people, right? Because like our A game in public health, think about smoking. We didn't drive down rates of smoking by telling people not to smoke. We drove down rates of smoking by making it hard to find places where they could smoke combined with making cigarettes very, very expensive. Um, so it's that same sort of environmental population level approach that optic that we're bringing to thinking about campus sexual assault. Um, and our, you know, we're just, the, the toolkit is called the sexual assault, the sexual assault prevention and campus equity toolkit. So what we're trying to do is to bring together the conversation around campus sexual assault prevention with the conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because ultimately, if sexual assault, as you pointed out, Katie, is about power inequalities, then campuses need to think in a more ambitious way about what it means to address those power inequalities on campus rather than having policies that that amplify them. Um, and our argument is not necessarily let's abolish the fraternities, right? That is not a hill we're going to die on right now. But rather, um, minoritized students should have equal access to great spaces to throw parties. If you think about Greek life as sort of like um, affirmative action for wealthy white men, we want those same kinds of structures and institutions for queer students and first year students and women and any first generation students, any student who walks onto campus feeling less powerful, they don't just need a lounge to invite speakers. They need a place where they can have a party and choose the music. So that's the vision. Interesting. So Seamus, there were, um, you were going to describe and talk about the third aspect, which is, I believe, sexual citizenship. Yeah, sexual citizenship, which is the sort of third leg of the stool of sexual projects, sexual geography and sexual citizenship, is really kind of a provocation. And by provocation, um, I think there's sort of two ways that Jennifer and I think about this. The first is that the idea of sexual citizenship is that all of us have the right to sexual self-determination. That is, we all have the right to decide on the kinds of sexual experiences that we want. And so the layer, the first layer of that provocation is saying people have the right to sexual self-determination. And what we saw in our research was that frequently that sense of your own right to sexual self-determination was undermined by communities. 
So for queer students, for example, we frequently saw how queer students' rights to sexual self-determination was undermined by the communities that they came from because basically they were told you don't have the right to have the kinds of sexual experiences that you want. They're illegitimate. And that really erased those students. We also saw this, though, frequently with women whose right to their own sexual desires was undermined by many of the communities that they came from. In the story of charisma that Jennifer told earlier on, one of the things that you know charisma had was this sense that like she didn't really have a full set of rights to her own sexuality. She didn't know how to express it. So the first provocation is to say it's our community responsibility to instill in young people their right to sexual self-determination. The second is where Jennifer and I kind of become or bring in a language of morality to a discussion about sex. And um, here, where most of the discussions about morality is whether or not sex is moral, right? Is hookup, are hookups good or bad? You know, are LGBTQ people legitimate in their sexual expression? That is not the kind of morality that Jennifer and I are talking about. In fact, our idea that people have the right to sexual self-determination says we don't really have a position on that. But where we do have a position is that we don't just have rights to sexual self-determination. We also have obligations to recognizing other people's equivalent rights. And one of the things that we saw again and again, particularly among people who'd committed assaults, who we also interviewed, was people's denial of the equivalent humanity of the person that they were with. So we saw this context where young people frequently denied the equivalent sexual citizenship of their partners. And this failure to us is part of the reason why we saw assaults happening. And does this cue into um, the whole um, area of sex education? We have so much to say about sex education. <laughs> I'm sure you do. One of the papers from the broader study, which um, was first authored by my husband, John Santelli, um, but I'm not just mentioning it because of that. It's also a really important paper, showed that um, women who had had comprehensive sex education before college were half as likely to be raped in college. Um, so it, it, whatever you like, certainly, unquestionably, our job in prevention is to teach people not to assault other people not just to focus on teaching people to defend themselves. And yet um, the the thing that the survey showed is that it was women's um, practicing saying no to sex that they didn't want to have, which also implies that they could say yes to sex that they did want to have. One of the limits with a lot of sex education, even if it's not abstinence-only sex education in the United States, is that it implies that sex is like a dirty, rotten, nasty thing that you should wait and do with someone you love after you're married, which is not a message that upholds young people's sexual citizenship. So if sex education just teaches about ovaries and fallopian tubes and body hair, um, it's not affirming young people's sexual citizenship. Good, comprehensive, inclusive sex education that recognizes that not all students are cis-hetero um, can really affirm sexual citizenship by commuting, communicating to young people 
that they do have the right to say yes, because we can't expect them to feel like they have the right to say no, unless we also educate them that like it is their choice to have sex when they want. I was thinking when you were talking, um, Seamus first, but also Jennifer, I'm thinking of Fran, who was shamed as a kid. Yeah, actually, that's, I mean, I, um, I now every time I think about Fran's story, I did that interview and it makes me start to cry. Um, uh, I'll just tell the early part of it. Um, so when she was, she grew up in a very religiously conservative community. Her family moved there. They weren't of that religion. And she recounted showing up to a pool party when she was five years old. And she felt like she was killing it because she, her mom had gotten her a new bikini and a matching cover-up. And you know, like when you're little, it's like that extra thing, like the matching cover-up. She was just so excited to, um, to, to wear her new outfit. And the other girls were so mean. They like attacked her for um, wearing a bikini and not, not physically, but they just, they shamed her so profoundly. And so she told the story later, like as she continued to tell the story, she, um, the first time that she was assaulted was in ninth grade by a senior. And in reflecting back on that, she said, I was already lost. Like that, like from the very beginning, when she was told that she was broken, that she deserved less, that she that she was terrible, that set her on a path of vulnerability. Obviously, the person who assaulted her bears responsibility, but it was the whole context that um, was so shaming of her. That 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 story just really, you know, it stuck to me. I can see why it got you. You know, why it became so emotional for you that that a five year old could be shamed and was basically set on a path for her future assaults because she's not the only one that happens to. And I think it's, you know, it's the, hers was a really um, just horrific example of this, but there are all kinds of things that we do that shame children about their bodies um, and about their sexuality. And, you know, the, like, think about how it is that we, don't name penises and vaginas with young people. We talk about like peepees and hoo-hahs and like, imagine a world where like we never used the word elbow, right? Like imagine that world, like what would it convey to young people? Well, it would convey that there's something unspeakable, something that could not be named about elbows that maybe that they should be ashamed of. And, you know, in the course of our research, like one woman said to us, Getting drunk before having sex was like Novocaine before the dentist. It just numbed me for what I was about to do. And like, that is not a story of assault, but it is a story of how sexual shame, be that grounded in sex ed and the story of sexual diseases, as Jennifer said, or just a general shaming of young people and young women in particular about their sexuality lays the groundwork for them to feel like, well, there's no legitimate expression of my sexuality. And, you know, it's really hard in that context, as much as we want to say, like, you should be saying no, et cetera, for people to feel like they can legitimately say no if we kind of tell them that there's no context where they can also legitimately say yes, and that what they're doing is something that they should be profoundly ashamed of in the first place. 
And it's sort of that argument also is sort of the the opposite of, not the opposite, but it's the other side of the coin of something in my many years as an educator, when I would say a woman may be saying yes to you, but if she cannot say no and be heard, then she can't be saying yes. I mean, it's like the same thing, but in inverse somehow, you know, on the same coin. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that makes me think of the story of Gwen. Gwen was, um, a uh, sort of normatively very beautiful young woman who rolled onto campus super excited for like the New York City club scene. And she told us the story of meeting up with, you know, not very famous actors and, you know, sort of B-list athletes and um, going back to their hotels, hotel rooms with them. But she was very clear that she didn't want to have sex with them. And so as she explained to us at the end of the night, she would give them a blowjob to get out of there. And like that refrain of young women feeling like they have to give a man a blowjob to get out of a space that they don't want to be in, you see the intersection of sexual citizenship and sexual geographies. Because we raise young women, not only young women, but but particularly young women in a context where they are made to feel like their own desires are not as important as other people's desires. And then they end up in spaces that they don't control. Um, so, you know, thinking back up to this, to that, connecting that back to sex education, like think about driving. Driving is a pretty dangerous thing that a lot of young people end up doing on their path to adulthood. Right. And like, believe me, it's terrifying the first time your kid gets behind the wheel, but we've created a whole system where young people can learn to get where they want to go, maybe even give somebody else a ride without hurting other people. And by failing to provide inclusive, comprehensive sex education, we're essentially refusing to teach people how to have sex without hurting other people. So we shouldn't be so surprised that they do. And, you know, the consent education that students get when they roll onto campus, imagine that the only thing we taught people about driving was to stop at stop signs. Well, like, yes, those stop signs are important, but if you, that's all you know about driving, Seamus and I don't want to share the road with you, right? Like it's complicated. And so there's so much more that we could be doing to teach young people how to have sex without hurting other people. Um, so I want to just interject, Jennifer, I love what you're talking about. I, if you, you know, our listeners, if you had to say three essentials that must be infused into sex ed, what would the, what would the learning outcomes be? I think one essential is actually not even about sex. It's about body autonomy. You have the right to control your body, right? So that is the number one message, but the number two message is so do other people. Um, and then a third thing, and I mean, Seamus, you might have three other things, um, but a third thing is that we can't put it all on the young people. You know, a world in which young people can't get access to sexual and reproductive health services is a world that tells them in a really powerful way that actually they don't have the right to choose sex. And so I, I think there's a part of it that's about messaging for young people, but there's a much broader part of it that's about the community environment that they're they're growing to adulthood in. The, um, the thing that I would add 
Katie, to that question, I, I totally agree with Jennifer that you have the right to your own bodily autonomy and other people have their own right to their bodily autonomy. I think the thing I would add, and maybe Katie, it's not what, what you're sort of looking, you're asking about is connecting everyday lessons of growing up to sex that frequently we silo the education about sex, but like kids get sex ed all the time. We just don't talk about it as sex ed. So when Jennifer and I talk about comprehensive sex ed, we're not talking about like teaching kindergartners the mechanics of sex. We're teaching them things like don't grab, use your words, right? Like that is a sexual assault prevention strategy. But, you know, if we could connect all the moral lessons of personhood that are happening in religious communities, on sports fields, about what it means to look out for one another, what it means to respect other people and respect what it is that they want, I think that's the kind of sex ed that we're really envisioning. I say, Jennifer and Seamus, thank you graciously for your time. But where to from here? Most of our listeners are survivors themselves, too. Um, So what would you like to give to our survivors as we close out our podcast? I'll go first and then Jennifer can bring us home because I feel like she's she's a great she's great in that role. Um, The first is to, you know, we wrote a book about campus sexual assault and to campus advocates, I'd say, you know, campus sexual assault isn't a campus problem. It's actually a much broader kind of everyone problem. And one of the strongest predictors for being assaulted in college is having been assaulted in high school. While a lot of campus activists are really sort of oriented to campus life and what they can do around campus, I would say that, you know, we should really be looking earlier to these high school, middle school years and what we can do there as primary prevention for assault. So the first step I would say is think early if you're going to be thinking about prevention. The second thing I would say is that, you know, in talking to survivors and those who are active in this area, it's really exhausting. The kind of emotional and mental health burden that people bring, not just because of their own experiences, but because, you know, as someone who's done this work, people now tell me their stories of assault. It really is an enormous burden that people carry. And I think that one of the things that Jennifer and I point to with this intersectional analysis is thinking about what it would look like to build a bigger tent of advocates. What would it mean to bring in people who do diversity, equity, and inclusion work and other people around you who are also in that fight for equality as part of the work that we're doing? And so those are the two things that I would suggest. I'm sure Jennifer has many more. Um, I have two actually very simple and important things that people should do now. The first is that um, we have to insist that state-level policymakers provide young people with age-appropriate comprehensive sex education. We know because our research shows that it would be protective. And I know, Katie and Claire, that you know that there's really substantial research that shows that comprehensive sex ed also prevents, protects young people against child sexual abuse. So it is truly criminal that there are states where legislators have opted not to provide it. Um, And even worse, that there are states where if it is provided, it has to discriminate against 
LGBT people. So the first do now is to demand what most parents actually want, which is age-appropriate comprehensive sex ed. And then the second is that parents can play an incredibly important role in affirming young people's sexual citizenship. Um, Because as a, and I say this with all the humility of someone who's raised two young men, um, you can't get them to do always what you want with their bodies, right? Like I totally failed to get my sons to floss, no matter how many times I told them. But if you don't have a conversation with your children about, if you don't begin early to talk about sex and relationships and respect, basically you're seeding the ground to pornography and you're letting them learn about sex from videos that they're sneaking at their friend's house. And so parents really need to step up and do the work. Yes, your kids might not have, your kids might not wait as long as you would want for them to have sex. But in the same way that like they don't floss, but they do understand the general importance of taking care of their teeth. That's what we can do as parents is communicate the general importance of respecting their own body and other people's bodies. That is something that schools can play a role in, but really it's got to start at home. Parents have to step up. You know, I was, I have to say that if, if we had a video with this podcast, both of you would have seen me like shouting silently. <laughs> yes. Yes. To all the things you've said, because I, I especially wanted to, well, the idea of bringing all the people into the, into the tent, so to speak, that you were saying, Seamus, where especially the diversity, and equity, and inclusion folks, um, so yes, absolutely. And also, cause of course they're one and the same. I mean, so much connection. And then Jennifer, you know what you're saying about parents and, you know, we can hope that when their brains finish growing, they'll start flossing. Right. But it's like with, with parents are so critical to setting, basically creating the platform and maybe we seed sex ed to schools because most parents are afraid to discuss it with their kids or they don't feel it's the right thing to do. Um, but these are the same people that say, it's my job to teach my kid about sex, right? So it's this conflicting um, message that parents convey and maybe they're afraid or maybe they don't know. But, um, and in the climate we're in right now, I feel like if, if we provided this information to young people, uh, and as Seamus, as you said, you know, they're more likely, young people are more likely to be assaulted in college if they've been assaulted in high school. And we know that more young women in particular who do not attend college are assaulted than women who do. So why don't we provide this? Why don't we do this in elementary, middle and high school? Seamus and Jennifer, I think you've given so much fodder for consideration in lots of different levels and accessibility and dimensionalities and inclusive, you know, for our survivors who are men or survivors are transgender, who uh, they're, they're non-white, you know, you've given lots of thought to thinking about what each of us can do. And for our listeners, I hope you'll um, grab on to whatever resonated with you from Seamus and Jennifer's conversation and their research. I have every confidence, <laughs> Jennifer and Seamus, that this will not be your first or last book together. Hopefully you'll continue on this journey and write another one and keep going with the research because it's so very critical 
to giving us the best information possible to informing us. So um, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Seamus, for joining us. Thank you so much for having us on and lifting up our work. We really appreciate of it. Course. Thank you so much. We're delighted to, to have an opportunity to, to share our work, uh, Sexual Citizens, Sex Power, and Assault on Campus uh, with, with, uh, with Katie and Claire. And we encourage anyone who's interested to pick up a copy of the book. It's now in paperback, so um, that's important to know. Um, and again, this has been the Dear Katie podcast. And thank you again to all of our listeners. Um, we hope you will continue to tune in and listen in and support additional survivors and their journeys and learn more about our various ways in which we can be more informed and more empowered to affect change in any space or place where we grace our you know, presence. Um, and Claire, thank you again for joining. Can you close this out? Sure. So just a reminder, if you are seeking uh, resources, you can visit takebackthenight.org for that list and also information about our legal support hotline. And just so you know, and as you heard today, we are never alone. And there are many who are walking us with us in solidarity and in healing and in supporting survivors and in ending sexual violence. Thanks so much, Claire. Thanks, Seamus. Thanks, Jennifer. And together again, we will shatter the silence and end the violence. We look forward to next week's podcast. Mm -hmm.